From the magnificent Midwest, it's the Suzanne Venker Show, where men and women are equal in value, but wildly different by nature. Join us here every week when we challenge the culture's hugely flawed narratives about men, women, sex, and love. From coast to coast and from around the world, thank you for joining us. So I've talked a lot with you guys about why cancel culture is a great reason to become a Patreon supporter, but there's actually another one. The more subscribers I have, the fewer commercials I need. So you guys have probably noticed that thus far, we're largely commercial free here at the Suzanne Venker Show, and I'd like to keep it that way for the time being. But in order to do that, I need listener support. So if you're an avid listener of the Suzanne Venker Show and you like that it's commercial free, please consider becoming a monthly subscriber. As always, there are four very economical levels from which to choose. And depending on which tier you choose, we offer giveaways and bonus episodes and Q&As with me. Just go to SuzanneVenker.com slash podcast and you'll see the red buttons about a quarter of the way down the page. Again, that's SuzanneVenker.com slash podcast. And speaking of Patreon, a big shout out to Sandra. Sandra, thank you so, so much for becoming a supporter of the Suzanne Banker Show. I really appreciate it. And now on with the show. Roy Baumeister is a social psychologist who explores how we think about the self and why we feel and act the way we do. He's one of the world's most prolific and influential psychologists who has published well over 500 scientific articles and more than 30 books. In 2013, he received the highest award given by the Association for Psychological Science, the William James Fellow Award, in recognition of his lifetime achievements. In his 2010 book, which we're going to be discussing today, called Is There Anything Good About Men?, Roy offers provocative answers to questions such as, have men really been engaged in a centuries-old conspiracy to exploit and oppress women? Have the essential differences between men and women really been erased? Have men now become unnecessary? Are they good for anything at all? Ultimately, Roy argues that relations between men and women are now and have always been more cooperative than antagonistic, that men and women are different in basic ways, and that successful cultures capitalize on these differences to outperform rival cultures. Still, he shows that while men have greatly benefited from the culture they have created, they have also suffered because of it. Welcome to the show, Roy. Thank you, Suzanne. Glad to be here. So I first I wanted to make clear that the breadth of your work goes way beyond what we're going to talk about today. You've spent your career doing research on topics such as self-control, decision-making, the need to belong, human sexuality, self-destructive behavior, et cetera. So, so there's a lot more you know than what we're going to talk about today, but I just wanted to sort of cover that to show the extent of, of your work. Um, but when you wrote, Is There Anything Good About Men?, which was, I think, was it 10 years ago? I think it was published uh, 10 years ago, so it was probably the few years before that I was yeah. working on it. Um, and I know when the book came out, you took a lot of heat for that, as all brave authors do who are willing to tell the truth these days. Um, was that your more provocative book than the others, or, or how, did that, how did it even come to be? Was this, is this like an aberration for you? Um, well, sort of all my books are controversial, so for me, it's, <laughs> it's just all one and the same. Okay. Well, as you mentioned, uh, I've worked in many different areas, and uh, I, I aspired to have a general understanding. I came into psychology from philosophy, and I wanted to use social science methods to tackle the big questions about life. So male and female is, is one of those. It's a part that uh, I had to study. Uh, I know it's a, a problem area because it's contentious, and certain things are not allowed to be said. 
but I can't really come up with a coherent understanding of human life and ignore gender. It's part of every, everybody's life every day. So I had to uh, tackle it. Um, I tried, I, I said in the book, I don't want to be on anybody's side. I was just trying to figure things out uh, and take a fresh uh, look at things. Uh, so I'm, it's, I don't seek controversy. If anything, it's, it's a annoyance. Not really yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and it's funny, you said you wrote this 10 years ago, because of course, we both know how bad things have gotten today here um, with respect to what you can and can't say since then. So I'm not sure. Um, I mean, it's bad, you know, it's to the point where I don't know where we're headed to not be able to say basic truths that are just have always been common sense in the past that are now, um, you know, taboo. Um, as you said, you wrote specifically in the book, I don't quote, I don't want to be on anyone's side. If there is a message, it's that we would be better for men and women to appreciate each other's contributions more. Men and women have been partners throughout human history, mostly working together for the good of both. I think the idea that men and women are natural enemies who conspire deviously to exploit and oppress each other is one of the most misguided and harmful myths that is distorting our current views about men and women. And I couldn't agree with you more, although I will say I think the um, exploiting and oppressing concept is much, mu not so much on the women, <laughs> but on the men. Um, the idea really is more that, that men, that man is the natural enemy of women, which, which you explain when you go back to say sort of like um, how, how it all started to be more of a um, uh, what I call competitiveness instead of complementary, right? That's really a lot of what you're talking about in the book. Um, and so I, to, to try to, let's try to compress this down because it's, it's, it's heavy, it's heavy and hard to explain um, in the, with the, in the scope that you do, but you open it up by framing this with this concept of the imaginary feminist, Explain what you meant when you did that. I, I understood it, but I'm not sure I could explain it. So um, see if you can explain how you, why you framed it that way and what that means. Well, living in this, in this culture, we're socialized with uh, a lot of feminist views. And so automatically uh, a feminist response comes if you say anything uh, uh, about yep. gender. And so I felt it was necessary to take on those arguments. Mm -hmm. um, because other people will say, well, what about this? They'll automatically think uh, of something like that. So I needed a, a device in the writing uh, to handle that. So that's, that's where that came from. It's sort of the automatic responses that, uh, again, we think of uh, immediately. So when you said imaginary feminist, you mean that you realize that when you're saying all these things that some feminist is going to ask you about it. Um, is that what you mean? when you say imaginary, like you imagine the feminist who's going to respond and say, well, what about this every time you make an argument about gender? Uh, right, yes. Uh, yes, again, it's the, the standard of an automatic argument. Yeah, right, because you wrote, okay, so, and, and your point there in the book, you wrote, the feminist view of what male society is all about is wildly off the mark. From reading feminist accounts of gender politics, one gets the impression that men and women have been collective enemies throughout history. Why is that wrong, Roy? Again, because we just, as we said a few moments ago, men and women have mostly worked together uh, and they've mostly been partners. Um, 
the idea that there's a male conspiracy to oppress women, I, I, I find uh, highly dubious. Um, I mean, I'm, what, 67 years old. I can't recall a single conversation in my life with other men about how can we keep women down? How can we oppress them? How can we put them in their place, either collectively or individually? Lots of the opposite conversations. How can we help women, both in general uh, and particular women? How can we do this for them? Uh, as well. I think I also quote uh, in the book, there was a guy who did uh, therapy with men's groups. Uh, and when I was presenting this stuff and I was working on the ideas, he, he told me, he said, uh, many conversations, you know, the men's groups always talk about women, but it's not like, how can we uh, oppress them or exploit them or keep them down? It's how can we work with them? How can we help them? How can we understand them? How can we relate to them? So at least on the men's side, uh, there's there's no view of women as as the enemy. Uh, moreover, this view that uh, at some point in time men banded together to uh, oppress women is very little to negligible historical uh, evidence for that. That's why later in the book I come up with what's an alternate explanation for how the gender inequality arose, uh, having to do with the different ways of being social, uh, because. Uh, Women specialize in the one-to-one -one relationship, uh, whereas men are also more interested in the, the larger groups. It started with an impression in, in psychology, and even I was reviewing a manuscript that sort of made this point that, oh, men aren't that social. And I said, well, come on, men are social. Men have the need to belong same as everyone else. Uh, it's just, if you look at one-to-one -one relationships, yes, they're the, the forte and they're what, what, what women feature, and women are probably... Uh, more skilled at men uh, in those relationships. But if you look at social things that are done in large groups, whether it's sports teams or, or, or large fields of research or whatever, uh, then men come through uh, as more social. So taking that you're back, we're pretty clear that in the hunter-gatherers, which was, you know, if humans have existed for 150,000 years, 140,000 we were hunter-gatherers, we were out roaming in the wild. So that's what we evolved to do. And they were extremely egalitarian, including among the men, including among the women. Uh, one anthropologist who spent his career working with uh, uh, these modern hunter-gatherers said he's never seen an adult give a command to another adult who then obeyed it. It's just relentlessly equal and, and men and women are assumed to have been about equal in prestige as well because nobody really set himself or herself above anybody mm -hmm. else and so why did then the men uh, forge ahead you know, the feminist account is that the men got together and decided let's push the women down why they would do this I, I don't really understand and again there's no evidence of it happening but um, culture grows better with large networks of shallow relations. And if you figure the men's sphere, uh, it was kind of organized like that with lots of different guys sharing information and competing and working together in large groups and so on. And the women still forming the intense one-to-one -one intimate relationships. Well, the culture will grow in the men's sphere rather than in the women's. And that's empirically what happened. You know, literature and science and philosophy and art and economics and uh, technology and government and military and all these things emerged from the men's sphere. So that's where wealth, knowledge, and power were created. That's where civilization grew. 
and the women's sphere has never produced things like that. And so my, my take on it is that, you know, that's where the inequality uh, emerged. It's not because of somebody being the enemy of somebody else. It's just because uh, a result of the different psychological talents of men and women. Uh, say in the book, women were accomplishing the more important task, which is getting the children through the first few uh, years so that they would, uh, um, you know, grow up and continue mm -hmm. the society. Uh, part of that was attaching to a man as, to, to provide for them. Again, this is evolutionarily unprecedented. Uh, the other great apes, the males don't take any interest in their children. They might occasionally protect one or something like that. But the idea that you would provide food for your children on a daily basis and for the mother of those children too, that would just be a ridiculous idea to any of the other great apes. But it's crucial in in human evolution because we have the longer dependency which allows the greater brain which makes civilization and everything else possible uh, but recruiting the man into the uh, the uh, the provider role was a key step and i think both male and female psyches had to adapt somewhat mm -hmm. and make that possible and so that's where the women were putting uh, their energy uh, what the men were doing and again technology and uh, philosophy and religion and all these other things that's more optional except over time that's what creates wealth knowledge and power uh, and that's why men ended up with a fair monopoly on those things uh, and so uh, uh, I think you can explain this whole history without any idea of one gender being evil and uh, absolutely uh, absolutely and you talk very wisely about how differences are rooted in trade-offs can you explain that yeah, I'm a firm believer in that. I, I mean, I spent my life in, in social science departments and we always think, oh, look, there's a problem and we've got the solution. Uh, but over time, you see, you solve one problem and you create another. So uh, I see the world much less the way the other guys do in terms of this is right and that's wrong and this is the way it should be and that's where it shouldn't be. Uh, I see it that there are, there are a lot of trade-offs and so you gain something and there's a, a cost to it as well. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the title which you selected for our talk today, uh, Are Women Better Than Men? Um, I would have to say, well, in specific areas, women are better and specific other areas, men are better. That's the trade-off. And, and, and the, the key point is, it's to me quite implausible that evolution would make one gender better <laughs> than the other, especially when they're mating and sharing their exactly. genes and everything. Um, and so overall, they have to be pretty similar, at least in terms of how nature keeps score. Uh, but nature will preserve differences as long as one's good for one thing and others good for something else. Um, and so, and I, mean, I was, and I would argue that we've lost that, of course, because of the competitive nature now of, of where we are today. So, so the relationships are not, that's what I deal with. Um, the relationships are not working smoothly at all because um, because they have become competitive. The whole complementary nature of how they're designed to work in tandem is, is no longer. So the conflict erupts. Um, but one of the things, so th I love this and I want to spend some time on this. I want to talk about the motivation or desires of men and women as opposed to their abilities. Um, and you have a great example in there, Roy, of showing how well, first of all, let's talk about what, why this is so important. The point is that it's, it's not 
about focusing on what men and women can do. I'm going to paraphrase here, but on what they want to do, what they are desirous of. Yeah. In psychology, the last half century, we've focused much more on abilities and forgotten about desires and motivation. But motivation is very, very basic. And um, my take on it when I read what I research literature on men and women uh, is that the abilities are pretty similar, except for a few things like, you know, throwing a softball. Uh, but, uh, but the motivations are different. And one sign is nobody's really making money out in the marketplace on different abilities between men and women, but different uh, motivations. Well, mm-hmm. you know, you have men's magazines and women's magazines and, uh, you know, you can take a list of titles of those articles and the students can guess right away which one is in the men's right. magazine. Right, right, Magazine. And so the motivations, what you care about, what you're interested in, what you want, those are the places where men and women are probably more meaningfully different uh, than in their ability. Uh, I mean, everybody wants to know who's better, who's smarter, and, and so on. It, 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 uh, the wrong question. Uh, our little girl, you say, who's smarter, boys or girls, and so on. Uh, But, you know, the mean IQ uh, in adults, males and females, is is almost identical, as so trivial as to be. Um, I mean, there's a difference in the variance, in other words, who Mm -hmm. spreads out more and who clusters in the middle. Uh, But overall, the average ability is is not much uh, different, again, apart from some right. of the physical sports things but the motivation and desires are huge what they care about what they want yes yes and so that's that's i think important to understand them very much so very much so okay so let's talk about one of those differences which is of course sex you wrote um uh, well a fair amount about that and one of the things you said was that which i really liked was that women simply cannot fathom the strength of the male sex drive and the aches of sexual frustration that pervade so many hours of a man's life. And I'm going to read um, something you wrote um, to sort of describe that. And I want to, um, I want to then explain a little bit about what I see in my coaching. I do marriage and relationship coaching and I can vouch for, for what you're saying there for sure, because I hear from so many men you can't believe Um who's who are literally in sexless marriages it's really heartbreaking yes um okay so this in this anecdote you said you you were basically saying if anything one can argue that women have a higher natural ability than men for sex women are more capable than men of having multiple orgasms women can have intercourse without being aroused whereas men cannot women can continue performing sexually immediately after an orgasm, whereas a man must wait out a refractory period before they're ready to go again. If one chooses to regard these as ability differences, then they all suggest that women have higher ability, but men have higher motivation. I thought that was a really great way to explain it. Okay, good. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, uh, abilities, you can also talk about skills and all that, but then the, Skills are perhaps differently needed, uh, but uh, but yes, we we did a, uh, a literature review some years ago on uh, uh, we tried to say a literature review on, on gender differences in sex drive, mm-hmm. uh, and the way we set it up is say, well, let's imagine two women, one has a higher sex drive than the other, what would be the differences in their behavior that you could measure? And you say, well, the one with a higher sex drive would think about sex more often, have more. 
fantasies, uh, have more partners, have mm -hmm. sex more often, uh, masturbate more, be more willing to make sacrifices. And then we look for gender differences. And, and on basically everything, uh, the men scored higher. I just saw actually somebody else has a new um, statistical compilation and coming to the same conclusion of uh, a fairly sizable difference that uh, <laughs> it's official. Men are hornier than women. Yeah. I mean, hello. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is not rocket science. Not that we don't need your research, but because common sense yeah. and experience would prove it. But the research really helps. Yeah. So I remember we were doing this review. It's because I had said it in a previous paper, and the reviewers said, "Oh no, I don't think so. This, this couldn't be. We, we, you know, it's, it's all the same." I said, "All right, let's see what the evidence is." And we mentioned in the lab meeting we were working on it, and one of the postdocs said, "Everyone who's ever had sex knows that." Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But what's really interesting about though, Roy, is I like the way you put it when you said women can't fathom the strength of the male sex drive because I do think it's gotten to a point where um, in modern relationships, there really is no empathy for that sex drive and that, that you, you cannot um, um, dismiss that as a wife, as though, um, as though it's not relevant because you don't feel it. Um, it it's the equivalent of, I, this is what I've liked, I've said this in several of my books, it's the equivalent of a man literally, or a woman telling a man or a wife telling a husband that she wants to talk and him telling her, oh, I don't have time for you right now. So, you know, something to that effect, because those, yes. that need or for that her to talk really and have connection. Have a baby. What's that? that? She really wants to have a baby and he's kind of indifferent. And yeah. he just, he said, oh, well, you know, you can sort of imagine she might think it's nice to have a little baby running around, but. Uh, but he maybe can't imagine the uh, the longing or the disappointment of a mother who's separated from her uh, her children. Uh, I mean, it's oh yeah, you use that example. That, uh, I mean, that's I use that because it's a really strong desire. It is. In it's one of those things when I looked at erotic plasticity, which is how much the the sex drive changes in response to social factors. This is one of my first papers on sex. Uh, and I reviewed a lot of literature, and it's clear the female sex drive adapts and changes much more uh, than the male. Uh, and I was then trying to come up with an explanation why. Uh, is it just because men have more power and women have to adapt at everything? But no, it doesn't seem like women are more adaptable in everything. So I said, well, maybe the really strong motivation is harder to tame. I thought of it like you have a house pet. And, you know, we have dogs because they don't want anything all that strong, but you get an animal with a real strong motivation, it's not going to be suitable as a house pet. So the male would be like the wild one. So I was trying to think, well, what would be the corresponding thing, something where women have a stronger desire for men, for something yeah. than men do. Yeah. Uh, and the desire to bear and raise children would yeah. be the logical example. And sure enough, there you get much more plasticity in the father role than in the mother role. The mother-child bond is pretty much universal. Uh, culture can say what it wants, but it, it doesn't really affect that. Whereas the father-child bond, it varies widely, historically, culturally, everything. So uh, again, my sense is yeah. the stronger the motivation, the harder it is to, to civilize it and change it and adapt it to like, social. And process. you mentioned a moment ago, moment ago that it changes for women, the sex drive. I, I, f I firmly believe that something happens to women post-kids where the sex um, drive is somehow more, um, I don't know what the word is. Um, 
some women lose interest. Some women want to become like teenage boys. And uh, well, I just think I just think that after X amount of time, they have several kids. That a lot of husbands don't recognize their wives as the wives that before kids, right? And or even right before marriage, um, that their desire just isn't there. And I don't know if it's supplanted by that baby desire and attachment um, or or not, but. I don't have any research for this. This is just simply anecdotal. And I, I just think there's something to that. And of course, a man didn't give birth, so he doesn't change in his desire for sex. Um, and he's not as taxed by, yeah. by those early years of you know, giving birth and breastfeeding and all of the rest. But anyway. Well, we just published a paper last year on changes in sexual desire over the first five years of marriage. Uh, and the man's desire is pretty much about the same. It doesn't change. In other words, the woman's tends to drop significantly, and it drops more if she has children, uh, but it still drops uh, if she doesn't have children. Now, what's this, if she doesn't have children? I See, I get why when she has children it would, but why without? Um, well, that's, um, that's a more difficult question. We, this was just the data I was, uh, I was reading that book by Tina Arndt uh, on the sex yeah. diaries. Uh, and she thought she'd get all these juicy anecdotes from having couples keep a record with more. I told her she should have called it the no sex diaries because there were a lot of stories of the men begging for a second. She said, I don't know why. It just seems like the women go off sex once they settle in a committed relationship. Yes. And so I asked my two friends who are experts in relationships. They said, is this true in the literature? I mean, she's a journalist and just kind of uh, had this impression. But is it is it true in systematic data? And they said, it's not known in the literature, but we have the data because they had both run five-year longitudinal studies and so it took a long time to go and analyze very complicated statistics and all this uh but but yes they said it's there now as to why it happens i don't know i mean the evolutionary explanation is the, the woman's job is biologically complex she gets to first attract the man into the provider role but once he's there then her agenda turns to raising the children uh so it shifts there um and in a sense, her her sex drive has served its purpose once the man is is recruited mm. into being her long term partner. That's that's one, but that's purely uh, speculative. Um, um, whether housework is a turn off, or uh, I don't know what. Um, we can look, but essentially, we don't know why it happens. We we know okay. pretty well that it, it does happen. Yeah, well, I and, can vouch for that. I mean, not personally, but <laughs> from my um from my coaching about, I, you mentioned about uh, women you know after the children are gone and so on i found in the long-term studies of couples the man has the same desires at 55 as he had at 25 just maybe a little bit less but the woman's might change at any point in there and she might you know suddenly start wanting to have sex with other women or take up masturbating or lose interest or have fantasies of being dominated um so hmm. it's much harder for a woman to know her own sexuality because it's a moving target. It, it, I see. Whereas men's Once is just sort of what like, wants. I see what you yeah. mean. Oh my God. That's what makes, that, that just makes women even more complicated than they already are, Roy. <laughs> <laughs> when you got married, things were perfect. You were both in love and life was good. Then somewhere along the line, everything changed. She changed, or maybe he did. Either which way, now your relationship feels, well, hard. 
I coach husbands and wives who feel lonely, disrespected, or misunderstood in their relationship. So many women today are desperate for their husbands to step up to the plate, to make a decision and to stick to it, to lead rather than to follow. Ladies, you have the power to make it happen. Men respond best to women who are grounded in their feminine core. As for husbands, so many of them want their wives to stop nagging and to just trust them, to smile more and to complain less to look at them the way they did when they were first dating. Men, you have the power to make it happen. Women respond best to men who are grounded in their masculine core. The secret to lasting love rests in the masculine-feminine dance. Once you master it, your relationship will no longer be difficult. You'll be moving with the biological tide rather than against it. And that makes marriage smooth sailing. If you're struggling in your relationship, if you feel frustrated or alone, I can help. Just go to SuzanneVenker.com, that's S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-V-E-N-K-E-R.com, and click on the coaching button at the top. Don't wait another minute to acquire the mindset you need to find love and to sustain it. It's so much easier than you think. That's SuzanneVenker.com. Okay, so another different, and we're going to do three here. We said the male sex drive is an example of, of the differences, and then also... The second one is um, different, how men and women differ in their attitudes about work. And this has to do with the lie of the glass ceiling. And I'm going to read another anecdote that you wrote, which I thought was great. Um, Recent research points increasingly to the same conclusion. The pharmacy industry, for example, is generally recognized as having essentially zero sex discrimination. Part of the reason is that there never seem to be enough people to take all the jobs. So anyone male or female can get the training and then pick, choose, and negotiate a job to his or her liking. Although men and women go into the field at similar rates, they tend to pick different kinds of jobs and careers. Women favor easier jobs with minimal travel and with fixed hours that can be accommodated to family life. And men tend to pick the jobs with greater responsibilities, longer hours, less flexible demands, but with higher earnings. Hence, in this field, like many others, men on average earn 20% 27% more than women. Now, nobody listening to this um, podcast is going to be surprised by that. Um, I mean, anybody listening here knows that the, um, that the um, gender gap exists for a reason, and it's not because of discrimination or oppression on the whole. It is absolutely 100% the difference in the motivations and desires of men and women. So not just sex, but also in how to approach work, right? Right. Yes. Yeah differences in how men and women pursue their careers. And, you know, these are generalities and there's plenty of overlap. Yep. And I've worked with a number of really hardworking, ambitious, uh, talented women who are making it to the top uh, in, in, in all kinds of fields. Uh, but on average, yes, that's what's happened. And that's why men earn more than women. It's not, uh, uh, it's not somebody saying, oh, I'm going to pay you less. Uh, it's, uh, it's the career choices. Okay, and then the last one that I have here is that men are more competitive by nature than women. I don't know anybody that would argue that, but just in case they would, I'm going to read one last great example that I liked in your book. You wrote, picture two boys bicycling, excuse me, picture two boys bicycling down the same deserted lane or skiing down the same slope or swimming next to each other in the same pool. Just by chance, they end up next to each other, going in the same direction at about the same speed. What happens? Each one quickens his pace a little. Both of them wonder whether the other is seeing this as competition. For in the past, sometimes when someone caught up to you, he yelled something as he passed you, signifying that he thought he had triumphed over you. So you were alert to it. Two girls doing this, not so much, I don't think. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that was great. That's exactly right. No, you know, women aren't going to be 
uh, next to each other in a pool and try to go faster to, to beat the other one. It's, it was just a great sort of um, tangible example of what we mean. We know that men are more competitive than women. That's not rocket science, but it's a great example of the differences between men and women for sure. Okay, yes, and uh, probably for good reason. Um, again, and, and I'm not one of these people that evolution explains everything, but it's, it's one of the, the starting points. But uh, you know, there's a, a fair discussion in the book about what percent of our ancestors were, were men versus women. And most people think it's half and half, but it's not. It's, it's uh, two to one, a lot more women. Uh, which has implications then for psychology, including the competitiveness. Only the best men were able to reproduce, whereas almost all the women were able to reproduce. Uh, and that has lots of implications, but uh, uh, you, you needed to compete to get to the top, whereas for a, a woman, you don't need to outdo other women. Someone will be willing to have sex with you and you'll have your baby and, uh, and your genes will be passed on. But most men who ever lived do not have a descendant walking the earth today. And so again, competition uh, among men to get to the top was, was important there. There's even, uh, there's even just a, a paper I was reading today on the, using the inequality coefficient uh, that, uh, that the top 20% of men are the, 80% you know, of the women are interested in, uh, in, in just them. Yes. So, uh, you were discussing the plight of the men at the low end who can't have anyone find anyone to have sex with, which is very exciting to them, uh, and there's very little sympathy for them. Uh, but you know, you see in the movies and stuff, people are having sex. But it's 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 the attractive men are really getting uh, most of the action. Uh, Equality is not there. Uh, toward that end, uh, monogamy is presented as a boon to women, but it's really a boon to the lower status men to spread the women around. Uh, through most of history, the societies were the rich, powerful, attractive men got all the sex, uh, and most of the men had none. So monogamy was an innovation. You look at who benefits from it. It's the, the low-status men because uh, then it spreads the women around. As soon as a man marries, he's taken. And if you're not that rich or handsome, you have to wait your turn until the others oh my goodness. are there. But, but you will certainly get one. There are lots of women who'd rather be, say, the third wife of Bill Gates or somebody like that uh, than be the only wife of an assistant manager of a convenience store or something Isn't like that. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, I don't know. Well, yeah. I mean, I can't relate personally. So I, I just, I, I'm aware of that. Um, but then that goes back to like, your, like what you're saying. I think evolution just explains so much that people really don't want to think of it that way. You know, like everything we're talking about is... Um, to me, just um, it's fascinating and it explains so much, but people don't like to think about it in these ways. You know, it feels kind of, I don't know, a yucky to feel, to think about men and women in these kind of crass ways. You know, I sort of feel like that's what people think when they hear this stuff. Is that what you get from? I suppose. I um, mean, there's a preference for saying it's a conspiracy, you know, that men are conspiring to oppress women and, and it's perhaps, more optimistic think well they just people happen to turn out this way this time but we could easily turn out very differently um i mean the sexual revolution had a big effect because sex changed so much in a very short time that that was clearly not any biological change that that was a societal change so the the social construction views of sex really were at a high point in the 1970s when the sexual revolution was reaching its peak its peak but then after that 
the 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 basic innate differences kind of resurfaced and it mm-hmm. turned out women didn't really like sleeping with a hundred different men uh the way men like sleeping with a hundred different women and uh, uh they wanted to be more choosy and have a more quality relationship and uh, nature always comes back right yes <laughs> <laughs> we can't beat it out well, this has been really informative, Roy. I really appreciate your coming on um, to talk to us. And where are you retired? Or are you still? You're in Australia, right? Um, I am a position in Australia. They uh, right now they're going through some changes, and so I, uh, I, I'm not sure quite what the future holds for me. I have no intention of stopping to work, uh, but I, I don't think I'll be teaching more at, at, at Queensland. So uh, um, right now I'm. I've got a book coming out and then I'm going to start a new one and I've got other projects. Oh my gosh. What's the one coming out about? Uh, A book on the self has been my, uh, the self has been the focus of much of my career. I mean, I I was in college in the seventies, which is the hippie days and everyone wanted to find themselves and things like that. uh, The hippies were taking drugs to do that, but the researchers said, Oh, we want to understand self and identity too. And uh, so um, I thought, is a vast research literature. Someone should pull it all together, figure out exactly what the self is and how it works. Uh, and will you so let I me think- know when you find out? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, my so- book will be out uh, later this year. Awesome. Okay. Right. Where can people find you? Um, oh, I'm easily found on the, the internet or uh, email me or. Uh, it's, it's Bo Meister, right? B-A-U-M-E-I-S-T-E-R. Did I say that right? Right. Yes. Roy Baumeister. And I first heard you, I could swear with when I wrote my first book 20 years ago, and I don't know what I quoted you about or what I found, but, um, but I, when someone alerted me to you, I said, that name is very familiar. So I know you've been around a while and your work is um, impressive. Okay. Well, thank you very much. So thanks, Roy. Uh, really nice to see you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for you having me You take care. Okay. okay. Bye-bye. And now for the email of the day, this is from Caitlin who writes, hello, Suzanne, I'm 19 trying to decide my career path. I'm family oriented. So my career is more a way to support my family. My parents want me to be a dentist and will pay for dental school. Working part-time as a dentist is common among women. Dental school could prevent me from being married and having children before 26. Do you think it would be better to be a dentist or work from home in another career path? So, there's no right or wrong answer to that. Um, you, you know, if, here's the deal. If you were my daughter and you were, yeah, I would have questions for you such as, you know, how badly you want to be a dentist. You said here that your um, parents have offered to pay. No, sorry. You said your parents want you to be a dentist. So then my first question would be, well, what do you want? Um, the fact that they'll pay for dental school is great, but the saying that your parents want you to be one is concerning. So I want to know, that's my first question is what do you want? If you really want to be a dentist, that's something you've always wanted to do. And you know of a way to do that part-time. I think that's a fantastic choice. Um, It's the best of all possibilities in that you're going to make a lot of money and you can do it part-time and presumably take X amount of years out when you have children. So, you know, all told, I would say, and you wouldn't have any debt because your parents are offering to pay for that. So I think that's great. I, I don't know how long, to, I'm not a dental person. I don't know how long that takes. Um, you said it's going to prevent you from getting married and having children before 26. Uh, yes or no. I, you know, again, I don't know how long it takes. Um, 
to become a dentist, but I don't know why it would certainly wouldn't prevent you from getting married. Um, potentially having kids. Sure. But does it have to be 26? It could be 27 or 28. So there's just kind of some unknowns there. But if you were asking whether or not it'd be better to be a dentist part-time or work from home in another career path, you know, working from home is, it's always been a great option. And I've always been a big supporter of that. Um, I will say over the years that the line between work and home is so blurred for everybody that I don't know working from home is always the answer. So, and again, that goes back to if you're talking about working from home when your kids or your last one is in school and the house is empty and available to you from eight to three, absolutely. It's not going to work so well when they're little or at all. And that's a big distinction that I don't think people make. There's a big difference between working from home if you have a two-year-old and you have a, versus a six-year-old in school all day. So, um, my concept of working from home is once they're in school. I think it's great. That's what I did. Um, wouldn't change it. Um, what I go, what, you know, is there something that you can, if you can be a dentist part-time hours during the hours your kids are in school, what's wrong with that? You know, that's another great option. So I don't think there's really a right or wrong answer to this. It's just the thing that stu stood out for me is the fact that you said my parents want me to be a dentist. And that, that was like a flashing yellow light. What does that mean? Um, so yeah, I hope that helps. Um, that would be my, that, yeah, those are my thoughts and um, hope it helps. And that ends this hour of the Suzanne Fanker Show. Don't forget to continue the conversation on Facebook by typing in the Facebook search bar, The Suzanne Banker Show. Also, please recommend this podcast to one friend you think would enjoy it. And don't forget to leave us a review on whatever platform you're now using. Finally, if you have a question or comment for me, you can email me at Suzanne at the Suzanne Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week.